Good morning. If, uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Jeremy Hall. I'm the associate pastor um, here at Townview, and it is a joy to be with y'all this morning. It's been a crazy week in the Hall household. We recently bought a house, and now we're recently fixing the house. Major plumbing disaster, so that's eaten up part of the week. And of course, we've got all the family coming this coming week to stay in the house without floors and ceilings. So <laughs> it's going to be fun. <laughs> it's good for being able to like listen in on what your in-laws say about you because the walls now have less insulation. Anyway, and we're, we're all over the place. Just yesterday, um, we got uh, to Ashley and I travel back to Birmingham and officiate a wedding for some youth from the first youth group that I had. And that was a really beautiful day. So yeah, wild week, but I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather be this morning than here with y'all. And, and I don't know if you can tell this, but I'm really passionate about this kind of moment. I, I really care about preaching. This is what I think I'm called to do. Sometimes I even think I'm good at it. And um, this sort of space is where I feel most alive and plugged in to who I'm supposed to be. So I'm, I'm thankful to be serving at a church where the associate gets to preach pretty often. I'm sorry for y'all, but I'm happy for me. Of, of course, I don't get to preach as much. Yeah, thank you for laughing. These are the jokes. <laughs> I don't get to preach as much as Jim. So when I get my chance to be up here, I feel like maybe I need to be exciting or I need to put a few more jokes for the chuckles section over here. Um, but yeah, I want to be exciting and energetic uh, and really have a chance to make an impact with the amount of sermons I do get. So I looked at the prescribed text for this week, hoping for something good, and it gave me Mark 13, which includes wars, the destruction of Jerusalem, the Antichrist, stars falling from the sky, and the very end of time itself. And I thought to myself, well, that's a bit dull. I think I'll do Leviticus. So what you heard Miss Cora and Miss Samantha read just a few minutes ago was a selection. I chopped it up to, for it to make a point. You probably felt the rhythm of it. Uh, Leviticus 4 and 5, lots of rules for dealing with different sins. These are rules and rituals for all different kinds of sins, for all different kinds of people under different circumstances. And the whole book is like that. Leviticus is a collection of rules and instructions regarding religion and ritual for the Hebrew people given by God to the religious leaders. Levites, Leviticus, yeah, you see what's going on there? It's, it's a good size book, but uh, it's not much of a page turner. Leviticus doesn't get a lot of love. It's often overlooked by Christian readers who uh, see it as sort of archaic legalistic, somewhat backwards thinking of a book. It seems to often devalue women or persons with disabilities, and it can read very xenophobic at times. It contains harsh fizzle punishments like the famous Leviticus 24, a fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And frequent use of the death penalty, fun book. And if all this weren't enough, the constant talk of sin and judgment and animal sacrifice makes many contemporary readers a bit uneasy. So how does such a book come about? And why do we still have it in our Bible? So let's, 
Let's take a step back and talk about the ancient world for a minute. I want you to imagine with me that you're an ancient farmer. And when I say ancient, I'm talking 4,000 years ancient. We're going back to like when these books started to occur, when they started to show up on the scene. So you go to Jesus and go another 2,000 years back. We're getting closer. So you are ancient, ancient farmer eking out a living on some subsistence farm near some river in the Near East. Not always the best farming environment anyway. And let's say you have a pretty good harvest this season. You would want to find a way to show the gods of the sun and the rain and the soil that you are thankful. You'd want to say thank you for this because you know you work and you plant and you put stuff in the ground, but then you're kind of just waiting to see if it's all going to happen. So you want to thank these forces. You want to show them that you're thankful that they've done this for you. And so what would you do? You'd make a sacrifice. You'd give them back a piece of what you have. You would burn some grain, send it to the sun. You would bury some of it, thank the soil. You might throw some into the sea to thank the water. Now it's time for the next harvest. And things come in even better than last time. How do you show the gods that you're even more thankful? How do you show them how happy and grateful you are? You have to give more. And things are good. Your spring harvest comes in strong. Your fall harvest is good. You're content and well-fed through the winter. But harvest time comes on the next year, and the ground gives you nothing. What, what do you do? You've clearly upset the gods somehow. The forces that provide for you, they've withheld their favor. You have to show them that you're sorry for whatever you've done to upset them and that you want their favor for your farm again. So you give more. And the cycle just goes on and on. Eventually grain isn't enough and you have to go to cattle. Then you have to use your time and adoration. You worship to give thanks. Eventually that's not enough. People started offering their own blood. They would cut themselves and their pain and their blood would be an offering, a sacrifice. And when this isn't good enough, you eventually end up giving your own children. We see this cycle all over the world. And this is how things go between humans and gods. Remember Genesis 22, this is way back in the book, when uh, God tells Abraham to give his son Isaac as a sacrifice? Do y'all remember this story? Do you remember what Abraham says? You shouldn't because he doesn't say anything. He doesn't protest. He doesn't ask why. He doesn't even ask how. Because he has likely seen it done before. He knows how to give his son as a sacrifice. He's not confused or shocked or appalled by this God's behavior because this is just how the gods behave. When God said, give me your son as a burnt offering, Abraham's response was just to go. Spoiler alert, God's going to interrupt the cycle in that story. You see, keeping the gods happy and on your side is expensive. You never know how much to give or what to give, how to give it, or if you've given the right amount or in the right way, and you would live in constant anxiety, worried that you had offended the gods and the forces that govern your life. 
But the God of the Bible behaves differently. We start to see this change in the way that God interacts with Abraham. This God enters into relationships with people, making covenants with them, setting up clear expectations and promises, promises to act in a certain way. This God rejects human sacrifice, and the constant ritual system uh, that we find in the book of Leviticus is there to put caps on this cycle of religious escalation so that the people can know that they are on good terms with God. For the first time in human history, you could know that you had been made right with God. There are structures, systems, amounts put in place, reparations to be made to God and to others, and specific sacrifices to be offered, and rituals to be completed so that you could have peace with God. It's beautiful, and for its time, it was radical and revolutionary and progressive. But over time, humans, as we do, found a way to make a new slavery out of this freedom. And by the time of Jesus, this system of atonement had swelled from humble worship to a massive religious industrial complex centered around the temple in Jerusalem. So, as an observant Jew in the first century at the time of Jesus, you would make your way as often as you could to the temple in Jerusalem to worship and to make your sacrifices and offerings as prescribed by the Torah. When you arrived, you would be taken back by the grandeur of the place. 150-foot-tall, whitewashed stone and gold temple. The Romans said it was one of the most beautiful things that they had captured for their empire. They said you could see it dozens of miles away like a second sun on the horizon. As you climbed the mountain, you would recite psalms, prayers, and prepare yourself for an encounter with the divine. In the court of the temple, when you get there, you would be greeted with smells and yells and smoke, vendors, music, animals, and worshipers, and lines. Lines like six flags in the summer. Lines worse than trying to get a biscuit from Martin's on a Friday morning. Lines out the door and down the street, all leading to the altar, where a priest would perform ritual sacrifices all day. All those things we read from Leviticus, all day, standing, patiently receiving offerings, hearing the confessions, doing the rituals, transferring the sins, slaughtering the animals, keeping the fires going, smearing the blood, keeping it all ritually clean, bathing, and doing it again and again and again. Confession, sin, slaughter, burn, confession, ritual, blood, smoke, over and over and over, all day. Standing there facing the never-ending line of sinners waiting to get right with God. All day, working their shifts best they can. Standing between God and the line of people never run out. With this in mind, with this whole scene captured... Let's turn to our text from Hebrews. We're continuing right where last week left off. Fantastic. So, this is chapter 10. Day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest, that's Jesus, when Jesus had offered 
for all, one sacrifice for sins, this is the important bit, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he goes on and adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Jesus is offering a completely new way to be human, an entirely new way to relate to God and to ourselves. The old way was all and rituals centered around the law of God, literally carved in stone at Mount Sinai after the Exodus. You see, the, the first covenant, the covenant God made with the people at Sinai, was terrifying. There was so much smoke and fire and thunder and noise that the people were horrified. And the covenant doesn't even make it off the mountain. The people right there at Sinai, right after the Exodus, create a golden calf a God that they can grasp, that they can understand, that they can literally touch, that they don't have to be so afraid of to stand in for Yahweh. Now, this new covenant relationship that Jesus is offering, it's based around grace and love. Not what we do, but what he has done for us. See, at the first covenant, God wrote the law on stone. But in the new covenant, God says, that he will write law on our hearts. And instead of a contract, the paradigm for this relationship is marriage. In the old way of relaying to God, the priest stood. He stood all day, almost every day. And there was always a priest standing, faithfully doing the work. But our priest has taken his seat because the work is done. Hear the familiar words from the cross. It is finished. So what's finished? The work of the priest. It's finished. For the sacrifice, it's finished. The need for the temple, it's finished. Wondering if God is out to get you, it is finished. The endless need to try to impress God so that maybe God will be on your team, it's finished. The anxiety of not knowing if you've done enough, it's finished. The constant fear that God is mad at you, it's finished. The fear of isolation, finished. The fear of death, finished. The fear of hell, finished. It is finished. Whatever is keeping you from connecting to God, connecting to your community, connecting to yourself and your purpose, Whatever that thing is that you're holding on to, let it go. The priest has already taken his seat. Stop trying to do the work that Jesus has already done. This is one of the reasons that we wish of accepting Jesus in our tradition. To be a Christian is to be someone who has accepted the truth that it is finished. All there is to do 
is accept it and let Jesus be enough. And in that, there is incredible freedom and life. Freedom that makes room for creativity and beauty and justice-making and hope and thankfulness and love. Thankfulness and love that if we let it, if we allow it to, can change us and can change the whole world.